Radio. Going out to make a difference. A talk by Sam Clear at the Immaculata Mission School 2015, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Hi, I am Sam. I am, as you heard originally from Tassie, um, I, and I'm in an awkward position right now because there are some people who I know quite well. Um, there are a few people here who have sat in on some of my talks previously and there are some people here who have no idea who I am at all. And I want to use in this talk tonight some of the specific stories that I know at least a couple of people here have heard previously. So kind of my apologies but also don't really care that much because <laughs> the point of those stories I think is as true and as imperative now as it was when hopefully you heard it the first time. I went to St Patrick's College in Launceston in Tasmania. I went to the University of Tasmania in Hobart. I studied mechanical engineering. The engineering faculty that I studied in was the most male-dominated field you can think of. Also the most chauvinistic, sexist um, and drunk faculty you could possibly think of at a university. It really challenged me because on Sundays I was going to Mass. Now that was really the extent of my Catholicity. Didn't really go much further than that. Thankfully though, I did meet one guy in the engineering faculty who took his faith seriously. He wasn't just nominal Catholic. He took it very seriously and he stood his ground without ever attacking the other guys. He just never gave in to what they were up to and made no apologies about it. And he was, so, he was actually the captain of the Tasmanian rugby team. Rugby's not huge in Tassie as in Melbourne. Um, but he was, you know, he's a big guy, uh, Italian back, well, Italian-Scottish background, two nations that don't mind fighting rugby. Um, he really did set a high example of what it was to be prayerful and to put God first. And so I ended up doing a, a scripture study with him and his parents in our local parish. Um, we covered what I think you've actually covered in the last few days. We looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and it was really life-changing for me. To the point when I graduated from university, instead of looking for engineering jobs, I was desperately in love with the idea of giving one year to God, just to do anything, do one year of mission. Now, not because God needed it, but because I was at a point where I knew that I needed it. I needed to give one year to God somewhere, doing anything. I was in love with the idea of going to Africa. I didn't know what I'd do, maybe dig holes and fill them with water, but go somewhere in Africa, use my engineering degree and go on mission. I looked at all the different options available and in the end, I decided to move to Sydney in New South Wales. When I saw, as one of the options, working with Youth Mission Team Australia, please put your hand up if you work for Youth Mission Team. Thank you. That's how I know these two guys, just so you know how we know we know each other. So I saw working for Youth Mission Team, and the Youth Mission Team are basically faith and character development of young adults. They run retreats, reflection days, run youth groups. Catholic ministers, effectively, youth ministers. When I saw that, it, was, it had the biggest cringe factor involved. 
in contemplating having to tell my engineering and football mates, by the way, my background wasn't just engineering, I played AFL at uh, Western Bulldogs and then Collingwood. I retired when I was 19 years old after breaking my back. Um, I only ever made it to reserves, I never played a seniors game, but my life centred around football. I, I studied for many of my exams in hotel rooms here in Melbourne and then would fly back. Consequently, didn't do that well. But that was what my life revolved around. It was um, after I'd retired, after breaking my back, I focused on my studies, I graduated. Um, but it was difficult to think about telling my engineering and football mates that I was going to go to Sydney and join Youth Mission Team Australia. And in the end, that's why I chose it. I figured if I was going to do something that was a year for God, maybe I should do something that I don't feel comfortable with that is genuinely going to stretch me, that I don't have a skill set for. I studied engineering. We don't deal with teenagers. I hadn't studied that at all. It was well and truly out of my comfort zone. So I chose it, went away and did youth mission team and felt terribly awkward for quite a while. But I loved it. I fell in love with the ministry and as we started to try to evangelise those around us. Inevitably what happens is you evangelise yourself. Um, and at the end of my first year on youth mission team, I decided to stay on. I stayed on for five years. I became a manager of the team. I was managing the Adelaide youth mission team for two years. And then I managed the Melbourne youth mission team for two years. I was based in Burwood, not too far from here. Now, during the four years as a manager in both uh, Melbourne and then sorry, in Adelaide and then here in Melbourne, um, I started to be invited into meetings as a Catholic representative. Lots of different churches had come together to work on certain missionary projects. But time and time again, those meetings descended into playground fights. When they found out where I went to church, which was St. Benedict's Catholic Church in Burwood when I was here in Melbourne, the meeting would just stop. One meeting just ground to a halt when they found out that I was Catholic. And then one guy turns to the guy running the meeting and says, sorry, what's he doing here? I thought this was just going to be Christians today. Like Catholics don't really believe in God. They had a little bit of a discussion and then the guy running the meeting apologised and asked me to leave. The next meeting I was at, different group of people, the Baptists and the Pentecostals, began throwing their Bibles across the table at each other, accusing each other of not being proper Christians, but then both of them looking to me to back them up. <laughs> because apparently I was, in their opinion, a proper Christian. This kept going on. I was getting really angry with what was going on around me. Um, I still tend to get fairly angry with different things that happen around me uh, at the moment. So I work, I actually work full-time as a public speaker. Believe it or not, this is my full-time job. I currently, one of the things that I, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, one of the things I desperately don't like is the schoolies culture up on the Gold Coast. Um, I now have a, a contract with a company called Harvest Pilgrimages. Some of you may know them. We developed an alternative schoolies. Um, so only, I'm a little bit tanned at the moment because I've spent a little bit of time over in Fiji in the last month. We took around, uh, we had 55 students from around Australia come across and do mission work for their schoolies experience. Um, just had an absolutely fantastic time. 
So I've got a, a pretty cool life. In a way, I'm genuinely thankful to God that I didn't earn much of an income over the last 15 years. Um, I've really enjoyed the work I've been able, been able to do. But when it came to the disunity of Christians, it was one of those things that, honestly, I didn't know what I could do. I'm seeing it around me. I'm seeing all these Christians fighting one another. There were churches here in Melbourne pumping tens of thousands of dollars into material against each other, uh, but they were refusing to talk to each other. They would not dialogue. They would not sit down in the same room to talk, but they were producing DVDs, even producing conferences and flying people out from the United States to talk about why their church is right and they need to go out and evangelise all the Catholics, Anglicans and Baptists because they aren't proper Christians. So there's all this money going into that. At the same time, I went 18 weeks without pay because there wasn't enough mini, uh, mini, money for Catholic... I don't even know how to say the word. There wasn't even enough money for Catholic youth ministry here in Melbourne at the time. So 18 weeks. I had to borrow money off my best mate from uni to pay my rent. Eventually paid him back. Um, I was really angry with what was going on. One day I read the story about a Baptist evangelical minister who had become a Catholic. It was a really interesting story, but what jumped out at me was that at the end of his journey, he lost his friends and family. His mum and dad felt that he had disowned Christ by becoming Catholic, so they disowned him. Never spoke to him again. His wife wanted a divorce. Reading that was like standing at a car crash and not knowing first aid. Seeing something horrific in front of me of where the church was at and whether it was the engineering brain or the male brain kicking in, I wanted to fix it. But the more I thought about it, the more I sat with it in prayer, the more I realised there wasn't anything I could do to fix this. I did not study theology or philosophy. I did not have a, any sort of position where anyone was going to listen to me. There was nothing I could do. I studied engineering and football. They don't come in handy. I knelt down before Mass one day. And what was playing on my mind was this. I don't know if you can read that. The screen's a little bit washed out. John 17, particularly verses 20 and 23. This is what was playing on my mind. This is Jesus praying. He's been praying for the disciples. And then he goes on to not just pray for the disciples. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these, his disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one. And in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, the reason that that was eating at me was that in verse 23 here, the bottom paragraph, Jesus in his prayer basically establishes that our unity is what is going to witness God's love to the world. I've been working in evangelization for five years up until that point. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, maybe it's actually our witness of disunity that is the reason why evangelization is so incredibly difficult because all these people we're trying to bring the gospel to, all they're witnessing is a fractured church. 
And all of a sudden, it took on a whole new meaning. We talk about the church being the body of Christ. I'm sure we've, most of us have heard that before. The church is the body of Christ. It felt like I was looking at Jesus crucified again. Only this time, we'd done it. And it genuinely felt as though we had done it and I was part of it. I was part of the crowd. Um, became really difficult. What I've been asked to talk about over the course of this talk tonight is making a difference in the world. How do we make a difference in the world and what is it that stops us from doing this? This for me was the greatest moment of, I want to do something, but I've got nothing. There is nothing I can offer to help with the unity of the church. I was kneeling in mass one day. It was actually at St. Dominic's in Camberwell. And as I knelt there before Mass, I prayed a very simple prayer, which was a prayer of resignation. And I said, God, I would love to help you, but sorry, mate, you're on your own. I'm out. The problem's too big. There's nothing I can do to help. I'm sorry. In the silence that followed, it genuinely felt as though God said, Sam, you're right. You can't fix it but I can. I need you to at least pray for unity. Just that overwhelming sense that there was one thing I could do which I was not doing, which was pray for unity. So that little offering, you actually mentioned it in the, the song at the beginning. I think you were saying that Bishop Macbeth was talking about bringing our small gift forward. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Yep. Right, and for me, that's what it was. It was this small gift. It didn't feel like much. It felt really insignificant. But bring that little gift forward of, I will at least pray for unity. I began to do that. In time, I began to invite some of my friends to pray for unity. Not the engineering and footy friends, but the missionary friends. But a lot of them refused to. A lot of, particularly my non-Catholic Christian friends, would say, I'd invite them to pray for unity, and they'd say, no, no, no. We'll be united when you join our church, when you become Christian. Or you'd experience Christianity if you were a true Christian. There were even those who were accusing me of not being Christian because I was praying for unity. Because Jesus prays for unity and God the Father would have heard Jesus' prayer. And if I'm praying for unity, I'm implying that God didn't hear Jesus' prayer. Therefore, I can't call myself Christian. I cannot begin to tell you how frustrated I was at what was in front of me. Even uh, one month ago, I was up in Port Macquarie and met a, a young Baptist guy. And he said to me, oh yeah, but with unity, you know, all that matters is the stuff that's important. And then there's all this other stuff that isn't really important. You know, we're all united. And I said to him, so what's really important? I said to him, so you mean things like the Eucharist and, um, and devotion to Mary and you know, the rosary and and you could just see him, just going, no, 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 they're, they're not important. You shouldn't even. I said, well, this is the problem. You hold on to what you believe is really important, and another Christian holds on to what they think is really important, and someone else holds on to what they think is really important, and then they don't dialogue. They don't talk to one another, and everyone thinks they're right. So with all this frustration building up, I had two heroes in my life. There were two men that I'd grown up 
wanting to emulate. One was an AFL footballer by the name of Gary Ablett. I'd spent most of my life trying to be like Gary Ablett. My other hero was St. Francis of Assisi. And it started off because I lived on a farm. St. Francis, animals, that connection. But of course, what I, what I then began to realise or learn was that St. Francis loved something a lot more than the animals around him, being Christ. And then, you know, it's almost like I was drawn to one aspect of St. Francis and then kind of introduced to the other. This was my one opportunity to be a little bit more like St. Francis of Assisi. I was looking at a world map one day, sitting in uh, the place I was living in, in Burwood, looking at this world map and very innocently thought, how brilliant would it be to do what St. Francis did? To sell everything that I own, get rid of everything, but then start walking. And whether you want to call it a protest walk or a promotional walk for unity, to walk around the world on foot, praying for unity, and stop in every single church I pass along the way. Whether it's Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Pentecostal, Evangelical, non-denominational or interdenominational. And invite them to at least pray for each other. Just as a starting point. That may not fix it initially, but it's a starting point. A desire to be united. To pray for it. And as simple as that thought was, while I was looking at the, the map, it never left me. It captivated me. I started doing more and more research on it. This was in 2006, not that long ago. Google Maps did not exist. I had to buy all physical maps of all the different countries I planned to walk through and where I was going and, and map it all out. I had an Excel spreadsheet open and I transferred everything in so that it was enormous. When you printed it out, I think it was 14 pages worth of towns that I was heading towards and the distance between each town and average temperature that time of year, etc. Um, and at the end of 2006, with the help of Archbishop Mark Coleridge from Brisbane and Archbishop Christopher Prowse from Canberra, uh, they were both here, auxiliary bishops here in Melbourne at the time. And they both help, helped me to put the journey together and in, it was December of 2006, I set off from Australia and on the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, December 16th, I began walking from the easternmost point of the Americas. The red line up there, hopefully you can see it, the red line from Joao Pessoa to Edmonton in Canada and then from Moscow across to Cape Finisterre. That's where I walked. As you can see, I did not walk the whole way around the world, right? This was not an attempt to get into the Guinness Book of Records by walking all the way around the world on foot. Um, it just so happens that I walked 15,500 kilometres whilst undertaking this particular mission, just to pray for unity and to invite people to pray for unity. From Joel Pessoa to Edmonton, it took me one year to walk that far, I averaged about a marathon a day, between 35 and 55 kilometres a day, depending on how far it was to the next town. Right? I didn't have a support crew. Well, I did, but they were here in Australia. So I'm, it was my very first trip overseas. I landed, <laughs> I landed in South America by myself. Within the first hour, I had a panic attack. My nose started to bleed, and I realised that I was a long way from Tasmania. Um, <laughs> 
and then set off across up to Edmonton in Canada. And it's very important that I made the next town. Didn't have a support crew. I've got to restock my food and water supply or die. So I've got to make that next town. From Edmonton, I flew into Vladivostok and took the train through Siberia. I was going to be going through Siberia in the middle of winter. It's going to be minus 40 degrees Celsius on average in the daytime, dropping to minus 60 on average in, at nighttime, with up to a week's worth of walking between each town. Uh, it was actually Archbishop Christopher Prowse who, when I was explaining the dilemma of getting through Siberia in winter, he shook his finger at me and said, Samuel, you are not interested in conversing with polar bears. Get the train. Don't be stupid. I was happy to take on the Archbishop's advice. I got the train through to Moscow, still doing the mission, but from the safety of the train. And then from Moscow on foot across the rest of Europe, down over the Alps, down into Rome, to the Vatican, around the Mediterranean, over the Pyrenees Mountains, and onto Cape Finisterre, the westernmost point of mainland Europe. A year and a half's worth of walking, uh, 15,500 kilometres on foot, a very, make sure, see if we can get this going, a very simple mission, walk where possible to bring attention to the, to the need to pray for unity and stop in every single church I pass along the way and invite them to pray for unity. Very simple mission, but a very difficult journey. I had to learn nine languages from scratch while crossing through 22 countries. I was also held at gunpoint on three occasions, once with a rifle, once with a semi-automatic, and once with that shotgun. It took a lot of negotiation to get his photograph afterwards. <laughs> I was robbed, mugged at knife point by four men. I was beaten up on the side of the road a few times, including this occasion here in Russia. This is just after those two guys had beaten me up. They had ripped the top strap off my backpack broken my two carbon fibre walking poles in half. He came after me. Shit, there's another bike here. At this stage, I'm running off because a third guy is running down the hill, also dressed in black, but with a bottle of vodka in hand, whistling out to his two mates because he wants in on the fight. So I'm getting away from there as quick as I could. That's where one guy put his thumbnail through the webbing during the fight. I also, though, on two occasions, woke up in the middle of the night with two men in my room. On both occasions, Brazil and Honduras, they were not in my room to rob me. They'd come into my room to get into bed with me. And I woke up with their hand on me on both occasions. Apparently with a beard, I'm an attractive guy. But it made it exceptionally difficult to fall asleep from then on. I'm still a very light sleeper. I had to fight these guys off. Um, I came face to face with a number of dangerous animals uh, during the course of the walk. I nearly lost my life a couple of times. That poor tarantula died 10 seconds later when a car ran over it. Um, <laughs> I had to walk around a lot of active volcanoes, had a big earthquake of 6.2 at one stage. I walked through temperatures ranging from uh, 47 degrees Celsius on a 42 kilometre day right down to minus 33 degrees Celsius on a 45-kilometre day. Uh, I was hospitalised quite a few times. I had salmonella poisoning, typhoid fever, food poisoning four times. Walking down a road in Mexico, I trod in a hole and dislodged my hip. Had to have that put back in. I tore the cartilage in both knees really badly. Had to have a knee operation on my left knee to free that up. I strained both Achilles tendons, had a heart arrhythmia, and I had a cut on my left big toe. Now, 
That cut might sound like the least of my worries compared to everything else that's going on around me. But because I'm walking 35 to 55 kilometres each day, particularly through the heat and humidity of the tropics, that little cut was becoming worse and worse. And it got to the point where the flesh underneath my toe had pushed halfway out across the nail and it was bleeding profusely. So it had to be operated on. It was operated on in Panama, in Central America. The surgeon did a fantastic job and I was able to walk on. But about eight or nine months later, while crossing through the United States, it split open for a second time and was operated on again. This time in Billings, Montana. This is not third world medicine. This is St. Vincent's Hospital in Billings, new hospital, great facilities and great doctors. But the doctors had a meeting at the end of my bed and then they turned to me and asked, so Sam, what's your pain threshold like? I said, uh, average? And they said, well, we're really sorry, but you've got a bad infection. It might even be a staph infection. There isn't enough blood circulation for the anaesthetic to distribute properly. We're going to operate, but we're not going to use anaesthetic. There's no point. We need you to grit your teeth. Don't flinch. We'll be as fast as we possibly can. My little brother, Christopher, had just flown in from Tasmania to join me for a month's worth of walking. He studied nursing. He did not care about his older brother. He wanted to see what happens when you operate without anaesthetic. <laughs> so with the doctor's permission, he sat in on the surgery with a video camera and filmed, interviewing the doctor. They had their medical speak going back and forwards while she grabs pliers grabs the big toenail, cuts it in half right down to the bed, rips half the nail out, it snapped on the way out. So she had to go back and get the bits still embedded, pull those out, cut the flesh away, patch it all up. Or while Chris continues filming and then has the audacity to turn to me and go, suck it in your big sook, and continue to ask his questions. Very simple mission, very difficult journey. It's very difficult to put into perspective what it's like to walk that far. Um, but there were, that's me over the course of the walk, that is Chris in the middle there the day before the operation when we were still good mates. Um, by the time I made it to Spain, I'd lost 14 kilograms. I have put all of that back on plus one. I put 15 kilos back on, um, in case you didn't know what 14 plus one was. So. I, there was not, I'm not exactly overweight as it is. I was very, very thin by the end of it. But yes, was looking like a cross between Forrest Gump and Jesus at that point. And very much looking forward to heading back home. Over the course of this journey, I learned some incredible lessons. Now, each of us learn incredible lessons in our everyday life. This was just intense if you didn't just pick that up. I have never had to overcome or pull through or just embrace pain so much in my life. I'm away from my family for 19 months. I did not have a mobile phone. These days, and I say these days, as I said, this was 2006 to 2008. These days, you can go overseas with your mobile phone and it will pick up another carrier and it'll work. That did not happen only six years ago. You had to either buy a brand new SIM card in every country or take a satellite phone, which is an exorbitant amount of money. I was going to get robbed anyway, so I didn't have a mobile phone with me. I'm, look, 
basic foundation, though, it was difficult. There were a lot of obstacles. But as a consequence, there were some incredible lessons to be learnt along the way. There's a beautiful line in the Catechism talking about faith. The actual paragraph on faith where this comes from is very dense. You'll read it a few times to get your head around it. But the last line is a perla. The last line is talking about our faith and it says that we are not called to have a blind faith. Our faith is based on our experience of Christ. So we're not called to just believe because you're told to believe, but we're called to have faith because we encounter Christ again and again, to the same point where for those who are still at school and those who remember when they were at school and mum and dad say they're going to pick you up after school, what do you do after school? You wait. Why? Because you actually trust mum and dad. Because when you were in primary school, they gained your trust. You actually have faith in your parents that they're going to pick you up from school. For the most part. My mum did leave me a few times, which wasn't good because we lived an hour away out on the farm. But for the most part, I had faith that mum would pick me up when she said she would. This journey around the world was an incredible lesson in the trustworthiness of God in having faith that when God calls me to love, when God calls me to carry the good news into the world, that I can make a difference. I just need to trust him. Even if I don't, and I don't mean this is a palm off, that sometimes we don't see the difference being made. I honestly believe that the difference is made and sometimes we don't see it. The beauty here was it actually did get to see quite a few um, quite a few examples of it along the way. I've got my notes written here on my computer, so I actually have to come across occasionally to check out what I've got here. Ah, that's right, I actually wanted to put the question up. So, this is it. What are the areas that inhibit me from truly loving God and making him known? So this is feedback. Let's throw a few things out. What are the things that do inhibit us from truly loving God and making him known. Fear, yes. Fear in itself, so I actually do a few talks on fear sometimes. Fear in itself can be very healthy. You see a big snake that's poisonous, it's good to have some fear of it and step back away from it. The big problem is when all our decisions are based on fear. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is fearful of what is about to happen. But his decision is not based on what he fears. His decision is based on love. So fear in itself has its place, but it can often stop us from moving forward. So fear is a big one. Pride, massive. Trust, absolutely. Any others? Then you probably throw sin in, and then that leads to other, you know, that can probably feed the pride, because when we don't want to come back, we're prideful of going back to God because we know we're sinful. They kind of all feed into each other. Worldly things getting caught up in what's around us, being distracted in a way of what's around us. 
Um, I want to, I know someone did actually say it, I, I want to actually centre on trust, uh, simply that it, for me over the course of the walk it was what tended to resound. A lot of these things tended to point towards that area of trusting God, that God is incredibly trustworthy. Here's the big question, and this is what's not just what I was faced with over the course of the walk, I'm still faced with this day in, day out. In fact, even when we're, in the, when we're singing before in praise and worship, this top one, do I still need to be converted? That was actually on my mind as I'm singing. It was a genuine prayer. Sometimes doing praise and worship, I'm just singing and I'm trying to harmonise and I'm just distracted doing that. I'm just trying to sing well as I'm on Australia's Got Talent instead of entering into prayer. Do I still need to be converted myself? And am I willing to go deeper in relationship with God? If I'm going to learn to trust God, I'm going to have to go deeper in my conversion. Um, by the way, if you've, you know when you sometimes get someone ask you the question, have you been saved? Do you know what the Catholic response is? I have been, I am being, and I will be. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. There's a, there's a whole process. We have a deepening of conversion. We convert to Christ and then we might convert even further because we realise his love is so much more extravagant and beautiful than I first thought. And then we learn about forgiveness and mercy and we convert it even further. And then realise that we're beginning to head in this way and we've forgotten about all the people around us and we've kind of converted our, our hearts break for those around us. And there's that deepening of, deepening of conversion time and time again. So how far am I willing to go? How deep am I willing to go? For God. Here was the problem for me. When I was growing up, if anyone ever said to me, Sam, Jesus loves you. Honestly, they might as well have been saying that. They might as well have been saying, Sam, Barry loves you. Kind of weird. Very awkward and who on earth is Barry? Does anyone here have someone in their family called Barry? If Barry was your dad and I came up to you and said, hey, I just got a message for you, uh, Barry loves you, it would actually mean something because you know Barry. If you don't know Barry, you want to run away pretty fast. And that was kind of me growing up when people, I, the funny thing is, I didn't mind if people said God loves me. I didn't, that didn't grate me too much. But when they said, Jesus loves you, I kind of freaked out a little. And the big reason was I didn't really know him. I've had to get to know who Jesus is for it to actually mean something, for it to move me in my life. I once asked my parish priest in Tasmania, for those from Tassie, uh, Father Terry Yard, if you know Father Terry, um, I asked him once, how do you pray? I had in my mind as a child that the priest used to go out the back into the sacristy, that little room next to the altar. He would talk to God and then come out and tell us what God said. That's how I thought it worked. 
Now, as I got older, I knew that that wasn't what was happening, but at the same time, there was a lot of the residue from that left over. I just didn't know... I mean, I knew the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory being the morning offering. I really didn't know any other prayers. I knew set prayers. So I asked Father Terry Yard, my parish priest, how do you pray? I actually bail him up after Mass one day. We are talking in the, in the door as everyone else was walking out. And his answer, I was expecting something really profound. And to a point it was, but it's a lot simpler than what I expected. He said, well, he said, Sam, I, first thing I do before I even get out of bed in the morning is I do the sign of the cross and I say good morning. He said, I then pray the prayers of the church. Now, I had no idea what they, they were. I now know it was the divine office that he was praying. But he said, at the end, I don't do the sign of the cross again. He said, I won't do that until I go to bed that night. He said, I try and make my whole day a prayer. He said, I try and pray 100 small prayers every day. As I'm, now, by the way, these photographs are people that I met while I was walking. But he was saying that during the course of his day, he'd pray. He said he didn't know if he prayed exactly 100, but... You know, it kind of felt like it, thereabouts. He said might be walking down the street. A woman might walk past him who looks a bit sad. So he said, just in my heart, he said, I'll quietly say a prayer for her. I say, God, please bless her with whatever she's going through. Please bless her with great friends, with faith, with hope, with love. He said, then I might see a really nice palm tree and say, God, nice palm tree. I like it. He said, so it doesn't matter what's going on around me. He said, I bring Christ into everything, into my prayers. So this was a big journey for me over the course of the walk, which I'm going to talk about a little bit towards the end, was to bring Jesus into every moment, bring prayer into the everyday, not just leave prayer for... So when I arrived here this afternoon, I went in to adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament. That's probably the pinnacle of our... Or the, no, the Mass is the pinnacle of prayer and adoration alongside Right, that's a very specific type of prayer. That is like going on a date with the person you've had a crush on for five years. You finally got that date and you're sitting down watching the most beautiful sunset, holding hands in silence. <laughs> right, there's just, it's just extraordinary adoration. But if that was all your relationship was, it does get a little bit weird after a while. There needs to be discussion, to talk, to actually enjoy life together as well, and then go and find the sunsets at the end of a really joyful day. So we have to take prayer out of what we may have had as a child and develop in relationship with Christ. That's what prayer was like for me growing up. It was something that didn't really make sense. I've got no idea why I'm being asked to read this and how on earth do you pronounce that? I was once asked to say, a, this was not in primary school, this was at university, I was asked to say a prayer. I had never read the word countenance, and so I prayed for God's continence. <laughs> it was always difficult when prayer was something that was very structured. The reality is that prayer should be something more like the next slide. Can you please turn to the person beside you and read this out? <laughs> prayer should be something that is very intimate. It should be really personal. It should stir something up within us. 
And at times it can be difficult because prayer does, sound, does feel very dry. It feels like at times we are praying this. And we don't know what the point is. It should be more like that. I want to um, touch on a particular story from the walk around the world that, to a point, it broke me. Now, when we're looking at taking prayer into the world and being intimate with Christ, it's probably easier to start, I'm going to go to that, but I'm going to start with being intimate with those around us to make a difference in the world immediately around us. And I want to go for this to Panama in Central America. Now, this particular guy, by the way, if you're sitting there, I haven't really talked about unity a great deal. If you're sitting there thinking, cool journey for walking around, oh, sorry, cool journey around the world, but maybe a stupid reason for walking around the world. Maybe you should have at least raised money for something. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully you genuinely understand the need for unity. But I want to underline that, underscore that a little bit through this particular story, but also through this to highlight what intimacy is with those around us. I met this guy in Panama when I, and sorry that the photograph's blurry, I took this photo, uploaded it onto my blog as a low resolution photograph. I was then robbed at knife point and they stole the camera. So someone in the slums of Central America has a nice high resolution photograph of this guy. I've only got the low res one. When I walked into his village, it was just three rows of houses around a dirt square. No one would say hello to me. I'd walk up to people to introduce myself. They'd flick their hand at me and walk away. Apart from two guys who swore at me, flicked their hand and walked away. They wanted nothing to do with me at all. Um, a lot of the, I'd copped a lot of racial abuse through South and Central America. A lot of them thought I was an American and that was not good. In fact, two of the three occasions that I was held at gunpoint were racially motivated. So it wasn't abnormal to not be accepted into this town and not be able to find accommodation. There was no hotel there. There was uh, a, a locked church. There was no one stationed there. Uh, there was nowhere for me to sleep. There was also no food. They had a store, but all the stores stocked were things like 10 kilograms of potatoes and 10 litres of beetroot. There was nothing I could actually buy to eat for dinner. Uh, I didn't, you know, wasn't going to buy 10 kilos of potatoes anyway. But I'm sitting there on a log on the edge of the village in darkness contemplating what I'm going to do that night. More than likely, I'll have to sleep in the jungle in my hammock and go without food for that night after walking 41 kilometres that day. Go without dinner. My stomach was already turning itself inside out. Not have breakfast then walk on for about another 20 kilometres to the next village and hope to get something there. That was looking like what the plan was going to be. While I'm sitting there on the log contemplating my options, this guy came and sat a few metres down from me. He had his daughter with him. She was mucking around playing. And he shuffled along the log towards me, put his hand out and introduced himself. His name was Adolfo. He was 24 years old. He introduced his seven-year-old daughter, Melissa, who just snuggled back into a dad, a bit embarrassed at being introduced to the tall stranger. And then he asked me, he didn't speak any English, it was all down to my poor Spanish. He asked me what I was doing there in his village. So I explained that I'd already walked three and a half thousand kilometres from Brazil 
what I was doing there in Panama and in his village and what the mission was. And he became very animated, very excited. Uh, he said, oh, pretty much everyone here in the village is Catholic. Apparently being Catholic and racist is still okay, but anyway. <laughs> so everyone here is Catholic. And so he said, I'll, I'll try and introduce you to some of the young guys who were standing nearby. So he stood up and tried to introduce me to these young guys just off to the side, but they just continued to flick their hand at me and basically told Adolfo to tell me where to go. They wanted nothing to do with me. Adolfo waited. He sat with me for the next hour, conversing slowly, um, and we waited until all these other guys had gone. And then he stood up in darkness with his daughter in hand and he said, Sam, do you need somewhere to sleep tonight? He said, I don't think my wife will mind. He said, we don't have much room, but you could sleep at our place if you like. I was so grateful. I did not want to sleep in the jungle for that night. So I followed him down out of the village. We walked down a hill, across a creek, up through some banana palms and out onto a cleared field to his home. Okay, that is it. There is no extension out to the left-hand side. It's just a tin shed. It's a dirt-floored structure. Uh, there is no electricity, no modern appliances. There is no running water. There is no stagnant water. There is no toilet. There is no bathroom. There is no kitchen. There is a little campfire off to the side with a little hot plate over it that acted as their kitchen. Uh, there is no furniture apart from those two wooden benches. There are no beds to sleep at night time. They had to sling hammocks from the ceiling and they had to put their hammocks as close to the ceiling as possible because there's no door across that doorway. They couldn't keep the wild animals out at night time. So when we arrived there in complete darkness, the whole house was, I at least had a torch. So for this night, we were going to have some light. His wife was sitting on this bench on the left-hand side in darkness waiting for her husband and daughter to return. She welcomed me with open arms and then Adolfo turned back to me and asked, so Sam, have you had anything to eat? Have you had dinner? Are you hungry? There's no fridge in that hut. There are no shelves in that hut. There was no food laying around. I was actually in, slightly in the hut there when they, he'd asked me, so I'd already flashed my torch around. I'd, there was, to put it bluntly, stuff all in there. There's no food, but he's just offered. And as I said, I'd walked 41Ks. My stomach was already churning itself inside out. I needed something to eat. So I said, look, I realise you don't have much, but I haven't had dinner yet. Anything you've got would be great. Thanks. Please, anything you've got, but I don't need much. And he said, I'll wait here a minute. And he ran back up into the village and went door knocking. And he came back 10 minutes later with half a bread roll and a slice of sausage on it and gave that to me to eat for dinner. We slept the night in our hammocks. The next morning, his wife and daughter walked hand in hand up into the village, leaving Adolfo and I to have breakfast together. He went back to the village, got a bread roll each for us. Um, there was some wild lemongrass growing nearby. We cut that up, put it in a pot of water and boiled it over the little campfire to make lemongrass tea. And we're sitting on those two benches chatting very slowly over breakfast. My Spanish was poor, but I was gaining confidence. I'd been, I mean, it's three and a half thousand kilometres worth of Spanish, so I'm gaining confidence. We're getting along pretty well. Eventually, I had the courage to ask him the million dollar question. And I said, Adolfo, what's it like for you living like this here in Panama? 
and he palmed it off. He answered it by saying, oh, I just wish the Panamanian soccer team would make the World Cup, but they've got a really bad defensive structure and they let a lot of goals through and it's not good. <laughs> so, well, I'm sorry about your soccer team, but I meant what's it like for you living in these conditions in this village? And he palmed it off a second time. I thought, okay, I'm pretty sure he understands what I'm asking him. He obviously doesn't want to talk about it. Fair enough, I'll change the subject. So instead, I asked him a fairly simple question about his wife and daughter. And he fell silent. There's really awkward silence. He's staring at me. And then after a little while, he lowered his gaze to his feet. And at that point, I realised that his shoulders were starting to go up and down. When he looked back up at me, there were tears streaming down across his face. He was sobbing. And he said, Sam, tomorrow morning I'm leaving my wife and daughter. He said, you know, last night up in the village, how no one would say hello to you. It's not because you're a gringo, a white guy. It's because you're not one of them. And in this village, if you're not one of them, you're never one of them. He said, I wasn't born here. He said, my wife's parents are an elderly couple here in the village. We moved here six months ago to, to assist them because they're struggling. He said, everyone will talk to my wife because she was born here. But he said, you're the first guy I've had a conversation with in six months since we moved here. You're the first person who's spoken to me. He said, because I wasn't born here, Every time I go and ask for employment for one of the jobs that's going, they just flick their hand at me and tell me to get lost. He said, they do the same thing to me that they were doing to you last night when you walked into the village. Because of that, I, we just don't have any money. So at the moment, we have to beg for all our food. The issue there, though, is that no one will open their doors when I go door knocking. They just yell at me from inside to keep walking. The only people I can beg from are my parents-in-law who we moved here to assist. He said, that's where I got the bread rolls from. He paused for a moment longer and then he said, when I went there last night to get you your dinner, the bread roll with a slice of sausage on it, he said, I was actually asking for four bread rolls because we hadn't had dinner either. But they only had one spare and that's the one I gave you. He said, I can't go to sleep any longer knowing that my family's starving, listening to my daughter cry herself to sleep. He said, I don't want to leave them. But he said, I can't stay here like this any longer. He said, yesterday I spent the last of our money and with it I bought a bus ticket and tomorrow morning, he said, I'm going to get on the bus and go to Panama City. Panama City was about 200 kilometres away. He hadn't told his wife that he was going and he wasn't going to. When she walked up into the village the next morning, he was going to walk out to the highway and get on the bus and go. And his plan was to then call her once he got to Panama City and apologise and tell her that he was going to be living on the streets down there, but he was going to find work doing anything he could, anywhere. He could find work, he'd take it, and then as he made money, he was going to send it home to his wife so that she could buy food and they could eat. 
He then stood up from his little bench there and walked around into the left and he picked up his daughter's only toy. It was Dino from the Flintstones. You've all seen the Flintstones cartoon, right? Dino the pink dinosaur. That was his daughter's one and only toy. Dino also had a key ring on his head because he was a McValue Mill Dino. Uh, someone had given her the McValue Mill Dino once and that was her one toy. Around Adolfo's thumb, he had a thumb rosary. Ten little beads with a cross on the end. He'd been holding onto the cross the whole time. I'd seen him holding onto it the, the night before when I first met him. He pulled that off and pushed it down over Dino's head so that Dino was wearing it like a necklace. And then with the key ring, Dino was attached to the side of my backpack. At that point, Adolfo pointed out that his daughter hadn't played with this toy in months. He said, she, she's not going to miss it. He said, I, I won't see the world like you're going to see it. Dino might as well go with you and see the world. He said, but I'm giving you this so you don't forget me. He said, as you walk on from here, I'd actually just given him all my contact details. But he didn't have a phone, he didn't have email, he didn't have internet, he didn't have an address. So he gave me Dino to remember him by. He said, as you walk on from here, can you please remember to pray for me? Please pray that I'll find work so that I can support my wife and daughter. Just please don't forget me. And I walked on from that village that day with Dino flicking into view every single step for the next 12,500 kilometres all the way to Spain. And I walked on from that village with his daughter's toy flicking into view and just feeling disgustingly rich. For the first time in my life, I felt like the little rich boy. And yet, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was finally emulating St. Francis and selling everything that I owned. And yet was still the little rich boy. Uh, the reality was I could... I, I actually gave Adolfo the money I had in my wallet to get him by for the first week or so and for his wife and daughter, hopefully to, to be able to eat for the first few days while he's away. The reality was I could walk onto the next town, find an ATM and withdraw more money out of my bank account. I was self-funded. I didn't have sponsorship, but I'd sold my Land Rover Discovery and sold everything else and put all the money in the bank. But that was funding my trip. I had the choice to do what I wanted with my money. I still had, I'd sold everything, but I still had the money to fund the trip. I just, I couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with it. I think most of my life I had always compared myself to the people around me, their situation, what's going on. All the way through high school, during summer holidays, my mates used to hang out at a place called the beach. Not once in my entire schooling did I get to hang out at the beach with my mates because I had to help dad on the farm. Dad used to find out when our school holidays were and key every farming job possible into school holidays. As a consequence, my mates had girlfriends. I'm hanging out with cows. <laughs> it was not fair. There was always something that just wasn't fair. Um, the reality was... Now, I've, I've recently found out that most of my mates were pretty envious of the life I had on the farm. We were in Tassie, for goodness sake. We weren't doing much at the beach. Uh, and most of their relationships weren't exactly the best relationships. They were just really awkward. 
and they're really envious of the life I had on one and a half thousand acres in central Tassie with kayaks, 32 acre dam, seven and a half kilometres of river frontage, play tennis court, cricket pitch with carpet on it, nets around it, eight ball table, swimming pool, motorbikes, horses. Had a pretty cool childhood in retrospect. Never had I had to put myself in a Dolpho situation. Uh, and to a greater point, never had I really put myself into Jesus' shoes or bare feet up Calvary. I had never really contemplated that of how far Jesus went for me in the same respect of I'd never had to go as far as Adolfo was going for his family. I'd never really seen that sort of sacrifice um, and willingly. And as I walked on, I actually sat down twice that day, completely disillusioned, thinking that surely there are better things I can do with my life than walk around the world praying for unity. I kept walking. I lost a lot of motivation for being there. Honestly wondered what the point was. Genuinely, I should just take the money in the bank and just give it to all the Adolfos I find. And then there was the, the difficulty of oh, what do I then do? Because then I'm an Adolfo. And it was, just, it was really, it was a pretty intense few weeks walking on from there. I ended up walking up to a, a Catholic church in a, a country to the north, knocked on the presbytery door, and a version of Hagrid opened up. An enormous six foot nine missionary priest from Germany towering over me. Uh, he weighed about 150 kilograms. He had an enormous beard. And I kid you not, his name was Father Potter. And I, <laughs> I introduced the mission to him. His name was Gerhard Potter from Germany, living in Central America. I introduced the mission to him, told him what I was doing. He was a Dominican priest, the order of preachers. Straight off the cuff in his thick German accent, First thing he says, after I've introduced myself, I don't care for what you're doing, and I don't think God does either. Oh, whoa, hang on a second. I wasn't about to tell him that I was disillusioned after meeting Adolfo. I went a bit, def went a bit defensive. I said, what do you mean God doesn't care about what I'm doing? I said, the longest prayer that Jesus prays, John 17, is all about unity. It's also the final prayer Jesus prays before the Passion. And then St. Paul talks about unity all throughout his letters. So what do you mean God doesn't care about what I'm doing? And this huge priest towering over me says, well, by the sounds of what you just explained to me, it sounds like you're walking around the world inviting Christians to agree with each other. I said, well, yeah. He said, well, that's nice. But Jesus wasn't praying that we'd agree with each other. He was praying that we'd love each other. And there's a really big difference. And he lectured me like a good Dominican for about half an hour on his doorstep about what real unity was. He took me actually on a walking tour of his area to highlight the point. Basically what he was getting at was that unity and truth is like the skeletal system. We've got a lot of broken bones in the world and dislocations that cause a lot of pain. But unity and love is the flesh over the top of it. You can mend every bone you want, but if there's no love over the top of it, you've still got a dead body. Put it this way, in Adolfo's village, and the, I'm sorry, Father Potter did actually use an example very similar to this in his area, but in Adolfo's village, 
pretty much you could guarantee that they all agree that the Panamanian soccer team had a bad defensive structure and they need to fix that. They probably all agree on the, pa on the Panamanian political system. They were all Catholic. They all agreed theologically, but they were not united. If you put an, a really simple Australian definition on, on unity and love, simply that we give us stuff about the people around us. But when we talk about can we make a difference in the world, really what that boils down to is can we give us stuff about the people around us? Because if we can, then we can carry God's love to them in some way, shape or form. The rest of the people in the village did not live like this. They lived in normal houses. There was plenty of food going around in their houses. A lot of them had veggie gardens and fruit trees everywhere. They had livestock. It would have taken just one person other than his parents-in-law who were elderly and struggling, just one person in the village to give us stuff about their situation to help them. I walked on with Dino flicking into view, realising I was passing Adolfo's every single day even to the point where we'd have Adolfo's here on retreat at the mission school. Hopefully no one has had to come here to grab food from um, the Texas Mexican to take home to their family to eat. But we can easily find ourselves in a situation where we do genuinely feel like no one gives us stuff about what we're going through. No one understands. The tragedy when we feel like God doesn't understand. Um, just as a bit of a side note, probably one of the greatest lessons I did learn on the walk was that in the darkest, darkest places of this journey, the realisation that Jesus was already walking it and he'd already walked it previously and he knew so much more intensely the pain being carried uh, and the pain that we go through. Um, it's easy for us to feel like if we were to open up to people and tell them what we're struggling with, or if people were to somehow find out what it is we're struggling with, that we will be labelled, we'll be ridiculed, told to grow up, you're not praying enough, where's your faith? You're not trusting God. Um, then beyond ourselves, into the wider community, to the homeless, to the refugees, to those who are homeless, those who just have not had a stable environment around them, those who've gone from house to house to house, those who've grown up without an encouraging environment around them. They've just had to fight for everything, including their own sense of dignity. Those who don't know that God loves them, that they're created with purpose. There's enough debate in Australia right now as to whether or not an unborn child is alive. In Guatemala City, when I walked through there, they were averaging 22 murders a day on average. They'd walk up behind people, shoot them in the back of the head, then steal $10 from them, because $10 was worth more than someone's life. 21 a day on average being shot dead. There's no respect for life at any point. So we could, could be getting involved with the dignity of life. I read an article last year saying that it was more dangerous in the Middle East right now to be a woman than it was to be a soldier. You're more likely to die if you're a woman than a soldier in the Middle East. So it could be getting involved with life issues. There's so many different ways we could get involved. Visiting the nursing home where there's someone dying lonely with no one to visit them. Just those basics. If each of us make that difference in the world by carrying Christ's love to those around us and allowing those around us to carry Christ's love to us, then we go a very, very big way, a long way to putting flesh 
back onto the body of Christ. Probably the biggest lesson that I did learn, which is, I guess, a culmination of what I've been talking about with the prayer, bringing prayer into everyday situations, but then also sacrifice and the beauty of sacrifice. What that kind of pointed towards was God is trustworthy. And time and time again, I was learning that lesson that God is indeed trustworthy. And the moment that stood out, uh, and if you ever do get an opportunity, by the way, that's, that's the book of the walk around the world. Um, Garrett Publishing brought that out one year ago. Um, so if, actually, I've got a few copies there if anyone did want to buy one. But for me, the pinnacle moment in it was in Wyoming in the United States. There are more deer than people in Wyoming, right? It's, it's wilderness. It is stunning wilderness, and I loved it. I'm from central Tassie. I've actually felt at home in Wyoming. Apart from the fact that when I walked into... I was walking into the dead of winter, right? And their winter is a little bit more severe than Tasmania's winter. I walked into a little town called Medicine Bow, on the southern edge of an area called Shirley Basin. Now, when I walked into Medicine Bow, it was... Anyone want to take a guess as to what the temperature is that day? It's minus 22. Well done. Blue skies, full sunshine, and it's minus 22. It was bitterly cold. My water supply froze solid that day. In the last few hours, I was able to get through the last few hours without needing a drink. I wasn't exactly sweating. But from Medicine Bow to the next town, a small city called Casper, it was 148 kilometres. And my map said there was nothing in between. Shirley Basin Wilderness was what it was called. I walked into the pub of Medicine Bow this tiny little town of about, I reckon, no more than 100 people. In the middle of nowhere, little ranch community. Um, a very different... I've got to put this in perspective too, though. In that town of 100 people, you'd expect about 98 of them to go to Mass daily. Very different to Australian towns. Right, so I've, when I've walked into the pub, this is a very Christian environment in the pub. And chatting to all the locals, you know, they're, they're really encouraging. But I opened my map up. I grabbed my pencil and I said, okay, what are my options out there? If it's 148 kilometres, that's three days worth of walking at 50, 50 and 48 k's. That means I've got to sleep in my tent for two nights out in the middle of Shirley Basin. My backpack was small. I could only carry a day and a half's worth of food. That gets me halfway. I've got another day and a half without food. My water supply, in theory, will freeze solid by lunchtime on the first day, leaving me with two and a half days without water. So that's not doable. That's not acceptable. So I'm asking the locals, what are my options? Where can I mark in on my map any service stations, petrol stations along the way, uh, roadhouses, restaurants, whatever you want? Any hotels, kind of wishful thinking, but hoping there's something out there. Where are the little... Uh, little townships, little settlements along the way where I might have been able to knock on someone's door. The locals are just standing there shaking their heads. They go, uh-uh, your map's correct. There ain't nothing out there. They said the next town 
the next service station, the next hotel is in Casper, 148 kilometres away. There was a cowboy standing at the bar listening into our conversation and he kind of shimmied into our little circle and he said, gee whiz kiddo, you know what, you walked all the way from Brazil. Man, that is awesome. Don't do it. He said, from what I just overheard, it sounds like you're walking around the world inviting people to pray for complete unity. He said, it's really important that you keep carrying that mission. You've got a long way to go yet. Don't risk it by trying to walk across Shirley Basin in wintertime. Locals die out there. When their cars break down, if someone doesn't go past within an hour, they're dead. Don't be macho. Get the bus. There's a bus tomorrow morning. It'll take you from, from Medicine Bow into Casper. You'll get in there by the middle of the afternoon. You walk on from there. The towns are more evenly distributed to the north. Don't risk it. Don't be stupid. All the locals were agreeing with the cowboy. In the end, I relented. I said, yep, you know what, you're right. Fair enough. It would be irresponsible of me to walk across Shirley Basin in wintertime. I'll take the bus. Satisfied that they had saved my life, they all left me alone and I grabbed my counter meal from the, the pub and sat in the corner eating that. And I was just quiet before God. I wasn't praying anything. I was just silent before God. A little bit like what we do in adoration, except I wasn't in a church, I was in a pub. But just quiet before God. And like a ton of bricks, just in my guts, it felt like God said one word and one word alone. Trust me. Now, I'd already been through so much to get to that point that it actually wasn't too difficult a decision to make. It kind of been building up to that. And so without too much fuss, just prayed a quick prayer and said, okay, God, I'll do it. But if I die out there, it's your fault. <laughs> so headed off to bed early and got up very early. Got up at 4 a.m. and started walking at 4.30 a.m. Snuck out the hotel, which was... Um, Everyone was asleep at that point. I left really early so that no one could try and stop me and snuck out and headed off out across Shirley Basin. Over the next three days and 148 kilometres, pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. My water supply did freeze rock solid. Um, my, I ended up with a bad chest infection and mild hypothermia was wheezing really badly, was not getting enough oxygen, felt very lethargic. Um, I saw, I'd seen a puma in Venezuela, came face to face with a puma there and was not a nice situation. Saw another puma uh, in Wyoming while crossing Shirley Basin. Thankfully, this one was running away from me, which is how I much prefer to see them. But pretty much every time that something was going wrong, a random Christian cowboy, not from Medicine Bow, happened to rock up in Shirley Basin, not having any idea who I was, but carrying exactly what I needed at that moment. The first guy who pulled up, his name was Gary. Gary pulled up in his pickup, wound his window down and just said, what in the hell are you doing out here? And I thought about saying to Gary, I'm just walking to Casper and leaving it at that. But I thought, well, I've got his attention, he's stopped out here. Might as well give him the full spiel. So I told him exactly what I was doing, what the mission was. Gary raised his eyebrows, dropped his jaw, 
And I was half expecting him just to wind the window up and just continue on across Shirley Basin. But then he started to shake his head and he finally, finally, he broke his silence with an, Hallelujah, Jesus! <laughs> he was... He was the most full-on evangelical Christian I think I've ever met in my life. He asked me where I was from in Australia. And I said, nearly every sentence he said finished with some sort of faith connotation tacked onto the end. He asked me where I was from in Australia. I said, I'm originally from Tasmania. He said, oh, wow, you're from Tassie. Praise you, Jesus. Like everything had that faith connotation tacked onto the end. And he said, do you need something to drink? I said, oh, please. I said, I haven't been able to drink for the last five hours. My water supplies frozen rock solid. And he reached down and picked up this massive bottle of Gatorade. And he said, I bought this and I left home this morning because I had a long drive ahead of me. But as I took off, I thought, well, that's stupid. I hate Gatorade. <laughs> he said, so I haven't even touched it. So he threw this full bottle of Gatorade out the window to me. And later that day, for whatever reason, I don't know why it just happened. I had a craving for peanut butter. I hadn't had peanut butter in a year and I, I wanted some. I'm walking along across Shirley Basin and lo and behold, here comes a pickup across Shirley Basin. It's Gary going home. <laughs> Gary pulls up alongside me, jumps out of his pickup and says, Sam, when I was in Casper buying myself a vacuum cleaner, I wanted to get you something but I had no idea what you like, so I just bought you a heap of Reese Buttercups. I had no idea what they were. I'd never seen them before. I said, oh, thanks. We shook hands, and actually we prayed for unity right there out in the middle of Shirley Basin, and then he took off, and I walked on, bit into the first Reese Buttercup, and at that point found out they were chocolate cupcakes injected with peanut butter. And I walked on... <laughs> stuffing my face with these Reese Buttercups. I felt sick eventually. I finished every single one of them. And then <clears throat> at the end of the second night, I was in my tent out in the middle of Shirley Basin. I had no food left. I'd run out of food. I had one muesli bar left. That was it. I had not had dinner. And I've got another 48 kilometres still to walk the next day, another full day's worth of walking to get into Casper. Not looking good. I'm sitting in my tent wondering what I'm going to do, and I hear footsteps approaching my tent. Not necessarily what you want to hear out in the middle of the wilderness, where you should be alone. And I unzipped my tent to check out, just make sure it wasn't a rogue cow walking at me. And it was a cowboy named Jet. Jet the Cowboy, J-H-E-T-T. Jet the Cowboy swaggering his way towards me through the darkness, with his arms laden full of food. Just thought you might be hungry, son. It was enough food. I swear, that is exactly what he said. It was enough food for me to have dinner that night, breakfast the next morning, a light lunch, and walk on into Casper, only slightly hungry, at about four o'clock in the afternoon on the third day. When I walked into Casper, the first thing I could see on the right-hand corner there is the Super 8 Motel. Now, it is literally the very first building on the edge of this 
town. It's not one of those towns that just goes from countryside to a few more houses and then bigger blocks and then city. It's like countryside, 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 city. There is a line and that's the first building. I was in love with that hotel, not because it's the Super 8, just because it is a hotel. I could see it for a kilometre and a half. I was wheezing badly with the bad chest infection, the mild hypothermia. I felt very lethargic. My toe was operated on in Billings, Montana. Okay, that's two weeks ahead of Casper. But my toe split open two weeks before Billings on this day. As I walked into Casper, I didn't know that my toe had split. I knew that it hurt, but suddenly became aware of what had happened as I approached that hotel and suddenly realised that every time my left foot hit the ground, my toes squelched. And only then did I realise eh, it split again. It had split a lot worse than what you saw in that video clip earlier on. Bleeding really badly. It felt like a cigarette lighter was on underneath it. It was burning. And because every... I don't know, it's kind of gross. I'll move on. So, I'm squelching and I'm wheezing. Every step towards that hotel I am not in that place of being quiet before God. I was in love with a hotel. But it's as though God overrode my thoughts. An attack of conscience, which most of us have pretty regularly. And it felt like Jesus was saying, you didn't come here to go to hotels. You came here to go to churches do the mission. I was indignant. I was so angry that either I had thought that or God had prompted it in me or whatever had just happened, I am not happy that I'm even contemplating that absurd thought and I'm doing everything I can to dismiss it, to push it aside as I continued to stumble and wheeze my way towards the Super 8 motel. It wasn't until I got out in front of the hotel that I finally gave up on it. And staring at the hotel, just said, okay, God, really, right now? I don't care. Whatever. I'll go to the churches. And very reluctantly, and dead set was reluctantly, walked on, squelching and wheezing, past hotel after hotel, and locked church after locked church and they all seemed to be on the other side of the road and wait for traffic stumble my way across and then walk on to the next one the next one's on the other side back across to that one i met a cleaner at one and that was it after an hour's worth of walking i'd only covered three kilometers prayed a quick prayer and said god this is ridiculous and i'm in pain and you know i need to stop i'm getting a hotel but I'll find one more church. But I'm sorry if there's no one in that church, that's your problem. I'm getting a hotel. The next church I came to was Our Lady of Fatima, Catholic Church. Set back up off the road, which grated me to no end because I had to stumble up this long driveway to this stupid church. <laughs> Get up there, knock on the presbytery door, and another version of Hagrid opens up. Smaller bloke, but big guy with a beard. 
um, his name was Father Fox. I introduced the mission to him, the changed mission now. Unity in truth and in love. And I'd explain complete unity. And I had a real spiel at that point for unity and the importance, the need for it. And said, would you mind extending to your parish the invitation to pray for complete unity? And this priest just said, okay. Turned and looked inside. And then turned back to me and said, my roast dinner is in there on the table getting cold. My team is about to play off in the World Series baseball final. And I have a meeting in an hour and a half. This is just about the most inappropriate time possible you could have chosen to come and knock on my door. But if there's one thing I've learnt in the last 30 years of being a priest, it's that God only puts people in my life at inappropriate moments. <laughs> Can I find you somewhere to sleep? I said, yes, please. He put me upstairs in the five-star Marriott Hotel for two nights on his credit card. And the next morning, he offered to come back and pick me up for morning mass, RDM mass. Um, so I just had to meet him downstairs in the foyer at 7.45. So went off to mass. He introduced me at the end of mass to the congregation. I, I got to invite the congregation myself to pray for complete unity. And then he invited me to walk out with him during the recessional hymn. And as we're walking out, to be honest, I felt like a bit of a, a um, celebrity at that point, everyone's shaking my hand and saying, well done as I'm walking out. Father Fox leant across to me and said, I've got a bit of a confession to make. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, well, this is a bit of an inappropriate time as we're walking down the aisle back out of Mass. And I, just, I just looked at him. I didn't actually say anything. I just kind of gave him a quizzical look. And he, he grinned and he said, I've made a few phone calls. We walked out of the church into a press conference. He'd rung the state newspapers, television crews, and radio stations. And the local pizza guy. He had pizzas off to the side. <laughs> and we set up for the press conference. Father Fox began literally testing the pizzas. And they asked the first question, what are you doing? I answered that. The second question was very dismissive. The reporter leant forward and said, why are you walking around the world for unity? Like you're putting your life on the line. Why not walk for something, I don't know, worthwhile? I drew breath to begin to answer his question, to explain why unity was not just worthwhile, but extraordinarily important. But before I'd said a single word, Father Fox had thrown his pizza back into the box, marched in front of the cameras and drilled them on the scandal of disunity, not just on the church, but on society. And he named things that they'd reported on and then not done anything to fix. And they were all backing away. It was almost like group confession. They're backing away like naughty schoolboys, all apologising to Father Fox. One poor reporter didn't know who he was. And he kind of stepped forward. You could see all the other reporters go, oh, dude, don't do it. <laughs> And this reporter leans forward and goes, sorry, who are you? 
And Father Fox says, I'm Father Robert Fox. I'm Wyoming's delegate for the unity of Christians. And he turns and winks at me. He hadn't even told me that his whole mission was about uniting all the Christians in that area. From that moment on, the invitation snowballed through the media. It was on the front page of newspapers. Uh, it, I was invited into radio stations. Uh, it was on the nightly news channels. And it snowballed through not just Wyoming into Montana, then Canadian media. Uh, the Vatican heard about it, put out through their media outlets. Uh, in Poland, a TV show came to the show on the road with me. Um, in fact, the magazine article here, for anyone who speaks Polish, I have no idea what that says, but it's Polish. Um, it says, Nazdav Budzina. In Slovakia, a huge unity concert with all the, the church, a lot of the churches gathered together in the capital city. I was the guest speaker with a translator. My Slovakian was pretty poor. Um, there, was, there were two, media, uh, sorry, two radio stations in the United States, one in Canada, opening their phone lines up. Saying, if you see the big Aussie walking down the side of the road, stop and say, get a. And if you haven't already, please join him in praying for unity. Here's Justin Bieber. We'll be back in a second. They come back from their song, open their phone lines up. People would start stopping alongside me, winding their windows down and say, how you doing? Go, uh, I'm pretty cold. Go, he's cold. And the next thing you know... <laughs> the next thing you know, mothers would come from everywhere in their minivans with hot soup and roast dinners. It never took off in Australia. The Australian media did not run with it. One TV station did do a 10-minute segment on it, but then decided not to air it. Because no one's interested in Australia in that God stuff. The rest of the world's media, it snowballed. I was at Mass. I know we have one, at least one person from St. Benedict's here, up in, um, um, that are, what's the suburb? Ultimo. In Sydney. I was at Mass at St. Benedict's in Sydney about six months ago. I was introduced to a Costa Rican couple who were new to the parish. And they asked me what I do. And it's a bit awkward to explain. I say I'm a public speaker. I said, what do you talk about? Um, well, I, there's no, well I, I walked around the world. And the woman went <gasps> and grabbed my arm and said, you've shaved! Yes. <laughs> she said, you walked through Costa Rica. That's where we're from. So, oh, yeah, I did. And she said, you're all on the newspapers. She said, we're all praying for unity. And it snowballed through world's media. But I look back on it now and I realized I very nearly missed the most important moment of the journey. Because I nearly took the bus. And the bus would have dropped me at the bus depot one kilometer past Father Fox. There's a three-star hotel next to the bus depot. I would have taken that and walked on from there. At least would have tried to get a, a room there. We've got to be very real about it. The, the action of trusting God often hurts. Whether it's physically, often it's our pride that's hurt in trusting God. It hurts in some way to trust God. I've yet to hear the life of a single saint who had a nice, cushy life. 
and it was just daffodils and butterflies. It hurts, and in the end, it really hurts. We don't really have to look any further than Jesus as to how much it hurts to place our entire trust in God's plan. But the beauty and fruit that is born from trusting God and going through the hard yards is so much more satisfying than taking the bus and just doing what everyone else does. I don't think that walking around the world is the hardest place to trust God. We all face it in our everyday lives, quite simply with our relationships. Right? I, I, had, a, I had an upbringing that was very much outdoors. Uh, we've got a photograph at home at my parents' place in Tassie of me in a jumpsuit, as in I'm about three years old, two and a half years old, on a beach, roughly a kilometre, kilometre and a half away, with no one else in sight. I'm a dot. And I'd grown up with knowing that that photo, or knowing of the existence of that photo, and then one day in my 20s, I turned to mum and said, hang on, who's with me? And she said, no one. She said, I took the photo and dad's standing beside me. You let me walk off along the beach for a kilometre and a half as a toddler in my jumpsuit. And she said, Sam, it wasn't that we let you walk off. We just couldn't ever keep you still. She said, we actually learnt that as long as we could roughly keep you in sight, you're okay. You had actually just disappeared. We had started to walk in your direction to go and find you and you popped up out of a sand dune. That's when we took the photograph. My parents gave me a lot of freedom. I was, I was very comfortable from a very young age to be alone in wilderness. That, for me, was not the hardest place to trust God. It's in everyday relationships. And I still see it with my friends, those who are the most extraordinarily devout Christians. Still the hardest place to trust God, to make a difference in the world, to bring authentic love into the world. Um, perhaps an odd place to finish, the other journey that I've been on. I still wear my wedding, my wedding ring. I got married two years after this in 2010. One week into marriage, discovered that my wife hadn't been honest about a few important things. It wasn't the end of the road. We, we started getting counselling and psychology work, a year and a half's worth. Uh, we are now divorced. Uh, they started hearing witnesses two weeks ago. I was married for a year and a half. I walked around the world for a year and a half. I can tell you very quickly which year and a half I would take any day. I would take the pumas, the pistols, the shotguns, the bedroom invasions, the split toes, the pneumonia. I would take that any day over the relationship breakdown. It's in those relationships when our, when our heart's on the line that it's hardest to trust God. And this is where we go back to Adolfo. This is where it's so imperative for us to carry Christ's love to those around us. Particularly, not just... I don't think anyone here would have a problem in carrying Christ's love to the homeless or to a refugee. 
I think we struggle sometimes to carry Christ's love to those we have a romantic interest with or to carry Christ's love to our brother or sister, to our family. That can often be a little bit more awkward because we know that when we, we worry, when pride gets in the way, we worry about what they think of us. But the beauty and satisfaction of making a difference in our world by carrying Christ's love to them is so much more satisfying than just doing what everyone else does. That was Sam Clear with Going Out to Make a Difference. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.